to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. We need to recognize that there is a great door that has opened for us. People all around the world are asking questions that they have not asked in a long time. In some cases, they've never asked. Like, wow, what happens after you die? What if I get sick? What if I lose a loved one? Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, in a message titled, Stand Firm in Faith and Love. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So here we go, the final chapter of this great letter to the Corinthians. So I want to begin this final message in our series, Everyday Discipleship. That's been our theme. And of course, 1 Corinthians has been our text. So I want to begin with something I said in the very first teaching as we started our journey here. And I want to do this because it will kind of give us a an overview of where we've been. So I said this, what the epistle to the Romans was to the church in 16th century Europe, 1 Corinthians is to the 21st century church in the West. Now, 16th century Europe, that was the time of the Reformation. So the Reformation was when the church came alive once again to the Bible and once again to the truth of the gospel. And the letter of Paul to the Romans was the key text that brought about the Reformation. And so that's what I mean when I say what Romans was to 16th century Europe. First Corinthians is to 21st century Western culture. So in other words, just like Romans was the perfect and appropriate and applicable word for the time, so 1 Corinthians is that for us today. Western culture is rapidly sliding back into its pre-Christian spiritual and moral condition. And as a result, the church finds itself not only living in a largely paganized culture, but being infiltrated by that culture. So much of what we are seeing in the culture is addressed right here in this letter. Exaltation of human wisdom, personality cults, division, sexual dysfunction and disorientation, confusion about life, confusion about our bodies, confusion about marriage and singleness, about worship, the supernatural, confusion about life beyond the grave and more. All of these things have been covered by us as we've made this journey. So here in Paul's closing words to these Corinthian Christians, he addresses a number of things that were pertinent to them at the time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through and we're going to look at some of those things because even though they related primarily to them there in Corinth in the first century, there's some principle that that overlaps with us that we can draw from. But the main 
focus today is going to be verse 13. Now, verse 13 is one of those exhortation, encouragement statements that Paul makes to the Corinthians, but obviously it's much broader. It's to all Christians as well. So that's the way we want to approach things here today. So starting with verses one through four, Paul here talks about the collection. So now about the collection for the Lord's people. Now, here's the background. The church in Jerusalem has fallen upon hard times. Remember, everything started in Jerusalem, right? That was ground zero for the gospel. That's where it all started. But now many years have passed, and the church in Jerusalem has gone through difficulty, fallen upon hard times, and they're in need. So Paul, of course, he loves the church in Jerusalem. Paul's Jewish, and he wants to see God work among the Jews. So he says to the Gentile churches, he says, hey, the the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are in desperate need. Let's give something to them. Let's give them a gift. And so the churches said, yes, amen. We want to be part of that. We want to make a contribution to this gift that's going to go to the church in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians were right there with the other churches on that. So now Paul is talking about that. He's giving them instruction. And he says this, on the first day of the week, or the first day of every week, uh, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, I will go. So just notice a couple things. Paul says, I want you to lay aside something every first day of the week. Why did Paul say the first day of the week? Because that's the day the church gathered. Sundays are the first day of the week. So Paul says, I don't want there to be a big push for this gift when I get there. I want you guys to you know, faithfully and just consistently do this regularly so when I come, the gift is there. So as we follow the story throughout the New Testament, Paul takes this gift to Jerusalem. And so they came through, but not before they tried to renege on their commitment. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul has to address that with them. Now he says, look, you, you made a promise, you made a pledge, you said you were going to give this, and he said, you really need to be faithful, you really need to keep your commitment. He said, because you know, if I have to go to Jerusalem and say, I, you know, told them in advance what you had promised, but now have to say, oh, they changed their mind. Paul said, that's going to be embarrassing for me. It's going to be embarrassing for you as well. And so, and then he reminds them of some real important principles in giving. He said, remember this, that if we sow sparingly, Paul's using a, a metaphor from agriculture. If we plant a few seeds, we're just going to get a small crop. But if we plant a lot of seeds, we'll get a larger crop. So he's applying that to giving financially to the church in Jerusalem. And then he wraps all of that encouragement up by saying this. Remember this, that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And so that's how Paul ends up finally, you know, exhorting them to follow through. They do follow through. 
Paul takes the gift to Jerusalem. Now, verses five through nine, Paul, again, is talking to them about his intention. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Here's the verse. Because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose. So Paul speaks of this great door that is open for him. And there are times when that's what happens. God opens a door. We're living in a strategic time. And Paul, Paul's the kind of guy who's going to seize the moment. Now, in Paul's life, many of these strategic moments were uncomfortable for him. (laughs) Paul went to prison for his faith, but he saw it as strategic. He saw that God had a purpose in it. So we need to recognize that there is a great door that has opened for us all around the world. People all around the world are asking questions that they have not asked in a long time. In some cases, they've never asked. Like, wow, what happens after you die? What if I get sick? What if I lose a loved one? What if I go bankrupt? What if, what all of these things. So these are opportunities. And this is the moment for the church to seize the opportunity and to bring the good news in the midst of this. Now, Paul says, there are many who oppose me. Whenever God opens a door, the enemy's gonna be right there to try to slam it shut. That is a fact of history. Whenever God is at work, the enemy's also working simultaneously to try to shut down, hinder, impede, you know, somehow minimalize what God wants to do. So we got to recognize that and not let the enemy fool us and get us off onto some tangent about something else and to lose sight of the opportunity that God's given. So I think this is just a good reminder for us here in this passage. Now, in verses 10 through 20, Paul, he's now going to reference a number of his friends and co-workers. Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, Aquila, Priscilla. He mentions Achaicus, Fortunatus here as well. And let me just say this. Paul understood the necessity and the value of partnership in ministry and friendship in life. Paul understood that. You know, sometimes a ministry is focused on one person. We've just lived through decades of of that kind of thing. Like, you know, the celebrity pastor, if you will. There's, There's a whole church. There's, in some cases, thousands of people. There's hundreds of people that are involved in the ministry, but the ministry is identified with one person. Now, Paul... He was that 
guy in a sense. He was that one guy, the Apostle Paul, who was doing so much. But he always wanted everybody to know that he did not do what he did alone. He always did this with a team. He always did this with people alongside him, helping him, working together with him. He wanted everybody to know that this isn't a one-man show. This isn't a one-man job. This is a team effort. And I think we've talked about that throughout the course of our series here. You know, the team is the way to go. God gives different giftings to different people, and we are all working together in this. I thank God after so many years of being here. I've been at this church 21 years now. That's a long time. And um, of course, I've been leading it as the senior pastor over the last eight years. And I feel like we really have, we've always had lots of great team members. But I feel like right now we have a unique situation where it's like all the right pieces have come together and we got the right team. We're on the same page and we're going in the same direction. And And I'm so excited about that. I love this aspect of the ministry. I love the team thing. And that is, as we can see here, it's a very biblical situation. So here we go. Paul's final word, and that's verse 13. So look at verse 13. He says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. So this is, you see, this is the broad, this is the general word. Now, it's interesting when you think about the letter itself. The whole letter, through most of the letter, Paul's tone is one of correcting the Corinthians. He commends them in the very first part of the epistle But the body of the letter is corrective. And at certain points, he's being very firm with them. But now here at the end, twice here at the end, he gives these words of encouragement. Remember verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And now he just comes right back in the middle of talking about his partners and his co-workers. He just comes with this word of encouragement. Be on your guard. Why does Paul say that? Be on your guard. Living the Christian life involves conflict with evil forces that are always trying to trip us up and ensnare us in sin. We are in a battle. We're in a battle. The Christian life is, it's a dangerous life. And all of history shows that. And Jesus told us about it. He warned his followers that in the world, you're gonna have trouble. You're gonna have conflict. You're gonna have battles. But he did say, take heart because I've overcome the world. But then when we look at the early history of the church, when we look at what we see in the book of Acts and we see God moving and we see the spirit being poured out and we see thousands coming to faith, we also see that there is opposition. We also see that the enemy is at work trying to trip them up. This is a reality. 
Peter says the same thing Paul does here, but he elaborates a bit more on why we need to be on our guard. He said it this way. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's why we need to be on our guard. We have an adversary. We have an enemy. And this enemy is proactive. He's not passive. He's not just lying around hoping that some misfortune will come along that he can capitalize on. No, he is actively at work trying to trip us up. The devil is a real foe. And he's working and he's maybe working overtime these days. Now, we have a three-pronged attack against us. We have the world. The world is the system that is against Christ. That's the system of the world. The world system is doing its best to keep Christ out of the minds and obviously the hearts of people and at the same time doing its best to corrupt the world with the things that God would forbid. So that's the world. And then we talked about the devil. He's a real being, powerful spiritual being who is working against us. But then our third enemy, and this is maybe the worst one, actually resides within us. It's ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. It's called the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil, these are the forces that Paul is saying, be on your guard against. Be on your guard against these things. And I do believe that although the world and the devil pose a a great threat, the flesh is uh, the greatest of the threats. These are the angles that the enemy is going to come from. The world, the flesh, and the devil. There was a book written some years ago by a, a man named Paul David Tripp. And the book was called Dangerous Calling. And it was a book about pastoral ministry. And it was a book where he was instructing, helping, warning, sharing from his own experiences to pastors and leaders, hey, we need to be careful. We need to watch out. We've got an enemy around us in the world. We've got an enemy after us in the devil. We've got an enemy inside of us with our flesh. And it, it was a good book. The back cover of the book, as do so many books, had a series of different pastors, well-known pastors around the country, who endorsed the book. Here's the irony. As the years went by, those men who endorsed the book, the majority of them on that list, all fell victim to the things he warned about in the book and have been removed from ministry. Man, talk about a prophetic book, Dangerous Calling. Yes, it is Dangerous Calling. But not just for pastors. It's a dangerous calling for all of us because the enemy is looking to, as I said, he's looking to trip us up. He's looking to ensnare us in sin. He's looking to stop us 
from experiencing the deep, deep relationship that God desires to have with us, and also he wants to stop us from making any progress for the kingdom. So be on your guard. And then he goes on and he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. It seems that every time we turn around, we are hearing about someone deconstructing their faith. How many have have heard that term, deconstruction? You heard that term, deconstructing the faith? This is like, it's kind of sweeping through the evangelical church. And I, I get that not everybody's heard it because not everybody is paying all that close attention to what's happening in the church world and so forth. But to deconstruct your faith means just what it sounds like. It means to dismantle it. And, and this is happening over and over again. People who were once well-known Christians are now saying they no longer believe in God, they no longer believe in Jesus, they no longer believe in the Bible. And of course, people in the media are capitalizing on that and saying, hey, look, you know, you're great Christian leaders. This guy doesn't even believe anymore. This guy says that the Bible isn't true. And this guy says that Jesus probably didn't rise from the dead. And so they're publicly deconstructing, and the people who are deconstructing are actually also now becoming evangelists for deconstruction. Oh, yeah, I used to believe what you believed. I thought all of that was true. I don't believe any of that anymore. You should follow me, and I'll tell you all the reasons why it's stupid to be a Christian. And, and so this, this is happening. This is happening with, most notably, it's happening with people who have been identified as Christian celebrities. Now, Christian celebrity is kind of a problematic term in the first place, if you think about it. Jesus, who is the Lord of the universe, says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. But, you know, there's a lot of people in the church world who their ministry has become a platform to promote them. And ironically, quite interestingly, I think, these are many who are publicly deconstructing their faith. Now, why are people deconstructing? Well, some are deconstructing simply because they're looking for reasons to justify their sin and to leave the faith. That's what's happening with some. And I read these stories, I hear these testimonies, and you know, somebody's like, you know, I grew up in this home. My parents were so strict, you know, I couldn't watch Harry Potter and, you know, we never got to have any fun and had to go to camp and Sunday school. And so I quit. I'm not a Christian anymore. It really really has nothing to do with the actual faith, but this little seed of doubt comes in. So then they, they just feel like, well, I can question everything because of that. So that, that's what's really happening with some people. But with other people, it is a little more serious. With others, they are deconstructing because of abuse that they have seen within the church context, abusive church leadership and hypocrisy. And so maybe they were in a church or a ministry and they really believed their pastor and they believed in the whole vision and program of what God was doing there. And then they find out that for 10 years, their pastor was actually sleeping with a secretary. And they're like, okay, I'm, I'm done, I'm out. 
And this kind of stuff is happening all over today. There's a lot of them going on. For the month of April, Back to Basics Radio is offering a timely resource titled One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell. Has a skeptic in your life ever stumped you with questions regarding God, social ethics, or supposed contradictions in the Bible? Well, with this book, One Minute Answers to Skeptics, concise responses to the top 50 objections and questions by Charlie Campbell, you can be equipped to address the questions of skeptics on those exact topics and many others. If you want to be equipped to always be ready to give a defense of the faith, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.